Welcome back to the Armchair Trader podcast. And today we're talking to Baz Koyman, who is CEO of DHF Capital. This podcast, we're actually going to be talking about quite a lot of fairly important issues within the area of investment. Um, so certainly if you're a newcomer or an experienced investor, I think there will be something here for you. Um, welcome to the podcast, Baz. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks for inviting me. So we've got quite a lot to cover today, um, but I thought just to kick off, can you give us a very brief summary of what you do at DHF Capital? Yes, for sure. Um, DHF Capital is a securitization firm in uh, in Luxembourg. Uh, we are actually making tailor-made financial products uh, for many years to uh, to larger institutional clients. And for the last couple of years, about uh, two, three years now, we are also having a few hedge fund strategies uh, that we are trying to help more people, not only the institutional corporates, but also the individuals uh, in mostly Europe and in the UAE region. Great. So um, just to kick off with um, allocating capital across asset classes, there's a lot of asset classes uh, to choose from out there. Um, even if you're a relatively sophisticated investor, it can be quite confusing. I mean, how, how should investors be approaching that, do you think? So I think that uh, for the last eight years, we've seen uh, that it's very good to have a certain percentage of your assets in more riskier investor investments. Um, we, for example, see that the currency market is more of a fast market that you can trade slowly. That is actually one of our, let's say, little secrets of, of surviving in the in the currency world. We have seen a lot of currency funds that were solely currency trading that went up 30%, down 60%, or even down 100%. Um, so we have this as a part of our strategy, which creates stable returns on the upside. But to level it out, we are also having actual actual stock trading uh, in the European and in the US market. Uh, I think it's very important to spread over multiple areas. Um, and then we also have even a small part of uh, bonds and AAA uh, products that are just the, the boring things that are good to have as well in the mix. Um, and the last part is uh, physical gold, actually laying in the vault, uh, bought at the right price, stored for the right price and uh, being available even in, uh, in, in crazy situations uh, when needed. So I think that the mix, um, they say 5% of your net worth in gold, that is something that we, we strongly believe is uh, smart to have. But the mix of, of, of more riskier strategies compared to the more stable or boring strategies and mixing that in the right percentages, that is kind of the goal for a stable return uh, on our side. That's that's very interesting. I'm speaking to other hedge fund managers in the market. I've, I've heard that some of them are owning a lot more than 5% gold at the moment. <laughs> But uh, so, I mean, looking at these asset classes, which which do you think are the most interesting at the moment? So I think it also, for example, on gold, it's the way how you would obtain it, because uh, most people only have the option for a retail version of obtaining gold in a store or, or a specialized shop that would actually be able to, to do that. 
Uh, for us, we can even go from gold dust up to the process of making bricks of it and then store them, uh, for example, in Dubai, where most of the gold goes through. So over the last five, six years, we've made very good relationships there, making it possible to buy it for the right price. And I think that's where the spread on gold, physical gold, is, is up to 10%, where a buyer is charged 5% and a seller is discounted 5%. So there's a 10% margin for a retail shop. Yeah, this is this is not the way you want to trade it yourself. So I think the physical gold is... It's something that people don't talk about because they feel it's difficult. It's um, it's maybe unsafe. You don't want to maybe store this at home in a, in a safe deposit box. So it is a difficult asset class to actually hold if you don't have the right contacts and the right yeah way of also keeping it safe for yourself and accessible. And you've, you've mentioned already the process of diversification whereby investors shouldn't really be putting as we say in English, all their eggs in one basket. You have to spread your risk across different different markets. Um, obviously, holding gold is um, partly a way of um, protecting yourself against inflation, and it's something we we have discussed before on previous podcasts in this series. Um, from your perspective, how important is both investing and diversification for for the individual investor? I think it's extremely important to do that because only holding gold will also not beat the S&P 500, for example. So it, it I believe that it needs to be a mix. Uh, and as, as S&P 500 is a, is a US uh, market, you can maybe also match that with a German 30 index or uh, in the Netherlands 25, we even have one or just the, the Euro Euro 500 uh, or Euro 100. Like I think that the index trading is something people can really set up easily themselves um, to make a mix over different markets. Take the FTSE, like your last podcast. It is a really available option for investors to say, okay, let me put 10,000 bucks in the, uh, in the FTSE. But mix it with the S&P 500, mix it with some physical gold, maybe physical silver. There's like other metals as well that are really interesting to, to hold and to, and to have. So it, it's all about that mix. Uh, and we always say we kind of do everything uh, on that level except real estate. And that would be an asset class to look into when the net worth goes goes up, um, up to, let's say, 5 million. It becomes a really important asset class to invest in. And what kind of risks are do you think investors are exposing themselves to when they're actually investing and that they need to be, uh, they need to be aware of? Yeah, I think one of the one of the more hotter topics lately, or at least in the last year, is the uh, inflation risk. We all know, uh, but also the currency risk. Because if you're investing, you're already trying to beat that inflation risk. But if you are investing, for example, as a European person, I'm from the Netherlands, so you do groceries in euros, but you invest everything in dollars. The last year was a good year for people in Europe who actually invested in dollars because you got automatically 16% richer than your neighbor by the euro dollar uh, uh, changing value. But when you have the opposite this year, you can have an amazing product with 8% or 10% uh, uh, profits, dividends at the end of this year. 
But if then your uh, currency inflicts the other way, maybe 16%, you're still in a loss uh, if you would not have invested in a euro product, for example. So investing in different currencies because you are investing in different areas, uh, people would really need to look if they can hedge this risk in a, in a certain way. And, and how, how, do, how can investors protect themselves from that? Um, I think the first level is to be aware of it, that you're like, hey, how much of my portfolio is in dollars? How much of my portfolio is in GBP? How much is in euros, etc.? Um, and then assessing that risk in the same percentages as you would also split your percentages. So if you say, okay, I want to invest 30% in the US market, then realize that your your total portfolio for 30% is in dollars. And you can then look into the FX market to see if you can place maybe a hedge against that if you're a European investor. So you can say the total value that I have in the US dollar market, I place a FX hedge against that so that um, my, my value goes up in euros. doesn't mean that that's a good thing, but you at least completely cover or 50% cover yourself for, uh, for a currency risk like that. What what do you think are the major factors that you that might impact financial markets this year? Um, I think one of the hot topics is the the, the whole AI uh, um, investing that comes up very quickly. Um, I think it became more well known when ChatGPT uh, got online, and I think about five million users registered very quickly. Um, it, 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 AI is something that we already, let's say, use for a very long time, but algorithmically. So we like to tell a computer what uh, kind of traits to look out for. So we can very quickly say, okay, if this red line crosses the blue line, give me an alert. And if it does the opposite, give me the opposite of an alert. But the lines don't change. Like you program them from a human mind, from a, from an experienced trader into an algorithm that then can give us alerts and, and, and kind of give us an edge in trading. But when you let AI take over the world saying like, do the investment for me and change the lines, change the rules, learn yourself. That's where we even hear from programmers that a program can evolve so quickly that the original programmer making the program already lost his code and doesn't know where this is going left or right. So I think this is a very interesting subject. On the other side, it's going in our opinion, very far from the AI is going to make trading decisions. But it at least became a very hot topic uh, almost in everyday life. So I think that is uh, that's a very interesting thing happening at this moment. I've been working with, um, yes, AI programs now for um, last least five or six years, um, particularly in the hedge fund space. Um, it seems to me, and, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, um, a lot of different hedge funds and pro traders have been using AI um, already. And it's a great tool because it helps you to analyze what's going on in the market at a, at a degree that the human mind is not capable of processing. So it can actually generate enormous amounts of uh, data analysis, um, even in a real-time uh, basis. But the, the the concern I have is what happens when it goes from just a few market participants using it to virtually everyone's using it because we saw this with we saw this with ETFs when 
the, the first ETFs were buying stocks. It wasn't a big deal. But now ETFs, exchange-traded funds, have become so dominant in, in some markets that they are actually almost owning the liquidity of that market. What happens when you have a situation where the majority of active market participants are actually AIs, not human beings? Is that going to just change the complexity of the market? Yeah, I do think so. And, and and you said it quite right, is that they can handle enormous amounts of data that a human would not do. And for analyzing purposes, we, we use this, other hedge funds are using this. I personally did not meet a hedge fund manager yet that says, I let it totally control all my trades. Mostly it's still an analyzing function where a human says yes or no on an actual order. And as long as that's the case, you keep the normal structure of market buys and sells, normal order books, normal demands. Because the point with the AIs is that even though you would uh, create one for your own and you keep it separate, as long as it's connected to the internet, it will be able to find all the other information that's available as well, which would make it extremely difficult when the market starts going down and all the AIs automatically would have, let's say, the power of attorney to actually start selling. Then a stock can just go to zero, as you said, if too much percentage would be automated or too much percentage would be controlled without a human saying yes or no to a decision. Uh, we can see maybe more active markets in volatility, which mostly is not good for the people on the other side. So that um, that I think is, is a risk factor that we need to start calculating in more and more, which in algorithms we program because we say, OK, if this happens, then do that. So if the market volatility goes up by this percentage, if it technically just goes crazy out there, do nothing. That's how our programs are written, because you don't know if you're on the right side of that uh, hike or, or dip. Do you think that this could actually create new um, volatility risks in the market? I'm thinking back here to when algorithmic trading was first becoming a thing. Um, you had some hedge funds, some high frequency guys trading in the market, and then you had things like the flash crash and other unnecessary volatility events that were purely being created by this kind of technology. Do you think that that's going to have to be something that markets and regulators are going to have to address? Yeah, I think so. I think maybe by simply regulating certain order sizes or, or amount of trades per day and things like that, regulatory uh, bodies can have some form of an, of an impact on this. Uh, till now, we have not been limited, but this would be my, my first quick solution, let's say, to say from a certain broker, there's mostly a, a maximum size per order, but there's not a maximum size on orders or is a maximum size of 200 orders on an instrument with like 2 billion per order, then you will really move the market if your fund goes short or goes long on that particular instrument. So. There are some limitations, but if then multiple AIs or multiple funds would make the same uh, suggestion and let's say follow each other because it's split seconds uh, between them instead of we normally would need to pick up the phone to call a colleague, that difference can make definitely flash crashes or in-stream hikes on certain instruments that we wouldn't expect. So do you think we'll, be in a, we'll soon be in a situation where once again, 
regulators will have to step in because at the moment, as, as from, from what you're saying, and I think this is the case, there's a bit of self-regulation going on by the banks, by the funds, um, private traders too small to affect the market. But do you see a situation where, you know, European and North American regulators are going to have to protect the market from too much AI activity in, say, shares or FX or what have you? Yeah, I, I think there, there will be regulatory adjustments. At this moment, we already see in the orders itself, it's already recognizable if it's done by a human or if it's done by a any form of robot, if it's algorithmically or AI. So there is already a, uh, a form of detecting this for the brokerages and the liquidity providers. So on that level, you would be able to put caps on... If this is an automated order, then it cannot be bigger than this, or then it cannot have a certain amount of quantity or quality in that order. Um, that That's going to be one level of maybe a quick fix of making sure that one fund doesn't go uh, in a very active buying spree or selling of all its orders that they, that they saved up for a couple of months. Um, but my biggest issue is that when they start talking to each other, and it's almost like when real Robocop starts to come in, it's like when multiple funds that are not having a human, uh, a human chance of saying no, multiple funds are going to do the same thing. That's when we will see extreme volatility uh, where everybody is buying something or everybody is selling something in very big quantities. And that would really move the market uh, away that then also no one would say, oh, it was this person who did it, or we have to fire this manager or this risk analyze uh, system didn't work. That is also a difference when it's totally automated, who is still going to be responsible for what happened in the market at that time? even regulated. And do you think there are particular markets that might be more vulnerable to this than others? I think it's mostly the very accessible markets. So we have APIs to different brokers where you can very actively trade higher volatility markets and higher volumes or quicker volumes, uh, which is mostly the FX market, uh, the ETF market, very accessible this way. Um, so, so the more physical markets where you say I'm actually buying a one stock of Tesla, that is a different market. That's maybe still the more investors market from the trading perspective. Everything is programmable nowadays, so we can connect everything to each other. And that's where we, uh, where we see that there could be any, any risks uh, coming up with this technology move. And, and finally, I wanted to ask you about the impact of AI on the wider economy. I mean, we've, we've been talking specifically about AI within trading and investment management. Um, still early days, but it's obviously going to be a bit of a game changer. How, how do you see it affecting the wider economy? Because at the moment, it, it's really been chat GPT that's got everybody talking about it. But as, as we've already mentioned, that it's been technology that's been in the financial space for a number of years now. Do you see it feeding out now into the wider economy in other ways and, and, and influencing the way um, we live our lives? Or is it going to just move back into the background like we've seen it already in things like Amazon 
where it's, it's already working, but people are just not aware that it's doing it. <laughs> I do think the first thing is that people will get more uh, aware of it. When I get an email that was written by someone who's using AI, I personally feel also uh, from technology perspective that I can recognize it. So I kind of see like, hey, this is not the how that person would normally email me, or this is not a language that would be generally used for this informal email, but then I get the super formal message telling the same as could have been done in different words. So I think one of the first things is that it's going to be recognizable for more and more people, not only people from IT sphere, but also in general, uh, which means that you can say marketeers are going to lose their job because marketing is going to be outsourced to AI. But will marketing as in an ad still work when I recognize it was written by an AI? Would I still buy the product because it still gives me the message? Or would I kind of write it off as like, hey, this is AI marketing on me. I'm ignoring this product because they, they choose the quick way or they choose the cheap way to go with an AI style marketing instead of someone actually writing a nice blog article. So this, I think, is already one of the things, uh, but it's not only text anymore. So indeed, AI goes way further to also imaging or music. Um, and there are producers who are currently just asking AI to write songs with tone and everything. They go on, on, on Spotify and, and they make money because they have created that song. And it's a good song. That's, that's, the, that's the worst <laughs> of it. Like, it's a good song. And they made it and they, they thought about it and they, at the end, produced it, but not with as much work as a producer with the, like, let's say, original technology would go to create his songs. So I think it's not only marketing and financial, which are the two main topics currently discussed, I feel, but it's going from photography where you can upload 20 selfies and get a professional photo shoot. Uh, you can do that for your whole team. So your whole team looks like having the same photo shoot and looks good. And you can say everybody has to wear blue and everybody has to wear a yellow scarf or whatever yellow attachment. And they will make your whole team look good without even visiting a photo uh, photographer uh, in a photo studio. So maybe the photo studios can disappear. Maybe the photographers can disappear because with 20 selfies, you can get yourself a professional photo for $20, while a photo shoot might cost you 200 or even more. So every job is technically and potentially impacted by AI. But then the same question as from the marketing ads perspective, would you go to a website where you see 20 perfect pictures of 20 perfect team members wearing exactly the perfect same clothes and styling? Would you directly recognize, hey, they used an AI tool, so I don't like this company? Or would you say they're just smart technology savvy and they actually used AI to make their website look good? So it, it will go two ways, which is a very personal direction for people do you like AI or not? And if you do, the world might look a bit different to you. And if you don't, you will have to kind of push away a lot of things. Say, I don't like this product because they use AI to market it. Or I don't like this company because they AI outsourced the, the photographer. So that that's going to be the big question. How is the general public going to like AI and AI produced results or not? No, you're absolutely right. I think it's it's a very 
very fast moving area of, of technology and the market and is going to have a lot of impact very, very quickly indeed. Uh, thank you very much indeed for coming on the show today and, and, and talking over some of these issues. And uh, we'll have to get you back on again in the near future, just as, as some of these themes play out. Thank you so much for having me. And I think uh, in, in half a year, we will exactly know what moved more forward and which of the of the technology kind of got stopped by saying like, I just like a photo studio and I just go there because that creates a different level of quality than, uh, than the whole AI move. So we, we will have to wait and see how those developments play out. Thanks very much indeed, Baz. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.